Thanks, dear. So there we go. Best of the West Wing Fest. Uh, I believe there is a code, Nerd Night COS. will get you 10% off. And you can also stalk us on our website, which we never really do anything on, but it's cos.nerdnight.com. But if you'd like to see the video of when I proposed to Maritza, you can check that out. So that's fun to see on the website. And one of the other events we do is called Memoirs, True Stories Unfiltered. The next memoirs will be August 29th. And the theme will be What's Your Reason? And that'll be a kinship landing. So August 29th, kinship landing. Here we go. Here's that promo code for the Best of the West Wing Fest. And let's put our hands together for our wonderful host, Venue Kawadi, for letting us do this here for now over a year. So thank you to Kawadi. And of course, give yourselves a hand, Colorado Springs. We love nerding out with you every month. That's all you got for you? Yes. All right. So tonight... Our presenters are presentation number one, Holistic Self-Healing for Chronic Pain and Inflammation by Chris Quinones. Presentation number two, Flight Surgery, How to Survive Your Next High G Flight by Rachel Langley. And presentation number three, The Theater of Cruelty by Seth Harris. So with that, let's get ready to nerd out and let's put our hands together for Chris Quinones. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. I'm Chris. I'm a natural pain relief expert, explorer, and mistress of eliminating your pain. I really help people automate their habits. Thank you. I help people automate their habits and get habit evolution to live these specific practices by the yogis and this holistic medical system from India called Ayurveda. Has anyone heard of Ayurveda before? Nice, so we got some people around, yeah? And my story really started with my own personal pain, <laughs> as it does for a lot of holistic practitioners. I am a competitive athlete still. I compete uh, then in martial arts and taekwondo, and that's where I incurred an injury, where I had slipped on some sweat in the ring and gone into a full, full split which I was not ready for. So I dislocated my hip and I tore some cartilage called the labrum. And that started a very long process of getting rid of chronic, achy pain that lasted for about another six years. Even though I had a surgical intervention, I did all the PT, there was always a missing component to it. And so I started getting interested in yoga, which was popular in the late 90s. It was just kind of getting into mainstream culture. And I started to learn about its sister science called Ayurveda. These are both Vedic systems from India. And Ayurveda is a Sanskrit word. Ayus meaning life, Veda meaning knowledge or wisdom, if you will. So it's really a lifestyle approach. It's homeopathic medicine that will allow you to maintain your personal spiritual beliefs and integrate it with all of your other wellness practitioners and approach. It's really about self-healing and understanding nature's laws. So if you like nature, and a lot of people here do, it's a great system for you to learn how to heal yourself and your pain without getting addicted to pain medications, delaying surgeries that may or may not be ultimately necessary. 
And so when I got my diagnosis of my hip labrum being torn, I was also told I had a congenital hip dysplasia, which I never knew. And so I went from injury intervention mode and then into prevention mode. How am I going to slow down the natural degeneration of my hip joint, which is what the doctors were telling me to expect? And so the name of the game was mitigating inflammation. And a lot of the practices that the yogis are taught are based on these 10 particular habits that I teach my clients in habit evolution, like getting to bed early and rising early and working more toward a plant-based diet, sitting in silence, self-massage. These are just a few of the self-care habits that I teach. And it's to address the inflammation equation. You've got too much stuff in your body or too much stuff on your mind. And these things affect your tissues, right? This is not woo-woo stuff. This has been measured and recorded and studied. And we're knowing more and more about this connective tissue of fascia and how chronic inflammation is such a big part of our landscape and modern living. So in Ayurveda, there's this concept called ama. Ama is the mama of disease, we say. It's the undigested food particles and undigested experiences in our lives that are left within the body, within the residue, if you will. There's a physical residue on the cells, in between the cells, in the cells, and there's a residue on the subtle level, energetically, of the mind. And so what happens is with certain habits that allow for this ama to be digested, you're able to then change your trajectory of how things go wrong. And Ayurveda is a really wonderful system that allows you to study these particular concepts called doshas or mind-body types and how the trajectory for each one of those plays out. Ayurveda says, you know, I, Look at the big view, zoom out. Allopathic medicine is really good at being specific and specialized. And Ayurveda is about looking at relationships and cause and effect and understanding that when things go wrong, generally they go predictably wrong. So the idea is to understand your mind-body type, the pattern, and hopefully recognize those signs early enough so you're not experiencing the chronic inflammation and pain. Because what happens when we have all this ama built up around the cells and in the cells, we don't have energy. We have foggy thinking. We have poor digestion. We have pain. And what starts out is general fatigue and a slow creep and weight gain year after year, decade after decade will turn into poor health and now the boon of autoimmune diseases that we see so much. How many of you know someone with a scary diagnosis? Lupus, Hashimoto's, right? Fibromyalgia, these are all considered under an umbrella of these autoimmune diseases. And the truth is, is that we have a choice. We can choose. We are sentient beings. Information has never been more readily available and the changes in habits of the yogis that I teach are rooted in circadian living, are simple, most of them free. 
but not easy to do in mainstream culture, because to do so would be to be against mainstream culture, prioritizing sleep, introducing intermittent fasting, and really optimizing your metabolism in a way that's not about, um, what's the word, not, not withdrawal, but um, like you're taking someone away, taking something away from you. It's about really understanding how to build nourishment in your life, deep nourishment in your life, and slow down the aging process. I work as a massage therapist and yoga therapist, and so a lot of my work is with the soft tissues. Injury, how do we slow aging, osteoarthritis, how do we repair or even heal from surgery or much more quickly with less complications and pain. And so I started getting interested in this Ayurveda when I went on a yoga retreat in Mexico, got one of the classical bodywork treatments, and thought, huh, that's interesting. I got the best sleep of my life for another week or so. I had a certain integration of my body that I hadn't experienced up until that point. And it was a really uh, eye-opening experience as to what kind of choices that we can make in lives and whether we're orienting from stress with degenerative habits like the you know we eat too late we eat too much we eat too frequently we eat processed food we stay up too late we don't get up and move enough all these kinds of habits that I go through help you decide where you're at right now and I do have some handouts over there you can help yourself too that list the 10 habits of circadian living and you can assess where you're at right now and what your risk might be for more chronic inflammation and pain. My doctor told me that I was going to need a bilateral hip replacement by the time I was 30. And to a competitive athlete, that was just not happening. And so I chose the path of yoga and Ayurveda. I chose to evolve my habits and invest in finding coaches and teachers who have been doing this, who could show me how to do it safely in the support of a community. And I would say for easy first steps for you tonight, well, actually, let me backtrack. Let me talk just a little bit about the, the, the three mind-body types in Ayurveda. That's a good place to start. We've, it's a nature-based system. And so one of the three doshas is a combination of space and air elements. This provides expansion and movement in the body, circulation in the body, growth in the mind. And what we see with contemporary modern day living is we're overscheduled and we're too busy. We literally don't have enough time to digest all of our experiences and all of our food. And we're paying for it. Look at the autoimmune diseases and the addictions that we have to pain medication, to lifestyle and degenerative habits that don't work. And I'm guilty of all these degenerative habits myself too. So it's a matter of training and investing and learning and evolving, evolving. So with modern life going so fast and we're overscheduled and certainly living here in a very dry climate, Certain qualities are going to be more abundant during certain times of years and day. Right now, we're in summer season, so 
that's the fire and water elements. That is the principle of transformation. Your bile, it is your cognition to understand and process information. It's the heat in your blood. And this allows when we have too much of uh, pathology in our lives with degenerative habits, we start seeing the inflammation and swelling. We start seeing it come out in our skin with rashes and allergies. We start seeing swelling in the body. We start seeing a lot of different things. Again, when things go bad, they do so somewhat predictably, according to Ayurveda. And so it's a very vast concept that I cannot squeeze in 15 minutes. But I will say that this vast system is accessible to you, regardless of what your beliefs are spiritually or even with regard to Western or allopathic medicine. It's a really complementary system. And you can begin with this one step because your digestive power determines how well your body can burn that ah, the mama of disease. And so you can start by simply making some simple digestive teas, a liter of hot water in a stainless steel bottle, put in a teaspoon of your favorite seed. I like cumin, coriander, and fennel. Those are great mixes. You can also use mint leaves, ginger, mustard, and a variety of other seeds that are very easy to travel with and help the gut digest food, reduce bloating, gas, and the better your digestion is, the better your sleep is, the better your immune system is, and the better you're able to think clearly and do hard things. So I think we need more of that vitality and we need to change the narrative on aging from pain and stiffness to mobility and vitality well into your 80s and beyond. I've done it. I've delayed my hip replacement. I have all my original hardware and now I salsa dance competitively and I maintain uh, my lifestyle as a, I'm a tennis player, skier, paddleboarder and doing all the things and being able to slow this process down of aging, of wear and tear. So if you want to learn how to do that, put your email on the list I have on the table, and I'll follow up with you after tonight, or just come talk to me. I'm happy to do so. My, my journey has not ended. It's a lifelong process. And it ended with me traveling ultimately to India and studying with some great teachers of my teachers here in the US. So. This is a process and it's something that saved my life over and over again and I wanted to save yours too. So I'll leave it at that for now. Are there any questions that you wanna ask me? I know we have limited time, so I could go on and on. No questions, okay, well you can come up to me later if you do, grab a card from the table, learn more about this system from India that can really help you change the narrative on aging and you can reach your potentiality. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. That was very interesting and I have heard of Ayurvedic medicine before. I have a friend in Miami that started to study it and went down that road. It's very, very amazing. Um, but now we have our trivia. So we have, whoop, I always get that wrong. All right, 
Nerd Trivia July edition. So we are going to quiz you guys on things that happen in the month of July. So let's take a, a, a journey here. Our first question, oh, hold on. Raise your hands like nice little boys and girls. Don't shout out the answer and we will call you out, okay? All right, so question one. We are all familiar with, or should be if you're actually nerds, Pi Day, March 14th. But what day in July is known as Pi Approximation Day? That is correct, July 22nd. 22 divided by seven equals 3.142857, which is pi. Question number two. On July 2nd, 71 years ago, what event took place that caused people to start believing in the unknown and created World UFO Day? Yes. An unidentified flying object crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. And the last question of this round, July 3rd, 2022, marks 37 years since the first of this time-traveling trilogy was released. Nope. Nope. Yes! Back to the future. Jamie over there. Or Marcella, you know. <laughs> All right. So that is the last of the trivia questions for today. I've seen a few. Well, sorry, for now. For now. I have seen a few Instagram likes and a few Instagram picture uh, comments come in, but I know that there, there's like 60 of you here tonight. So uh, I know that there's more to come. So go ahead and, and uh, follow us on Instagram. Put a, a, a comment on one of our pictures and enter to win a ticket, a free ticket to our Best of the West Wing Fest coming up in just a couple weeks. We're going to take a short 10, 15 minute break, refill your drinks, order some more food, and we will meet back here. <laughs> All right, nerds, it's time for our next presenter, our next nerd presenter of the evening. She's bringing a chair. And uh, I know Rachel Langley from uh, networking, and I will tell you, she is one witty individual. I really enjoy her wit, so I'm very much looking forward to what we're going to learn today about what is flight surgery. So let's put our hands together for Rachel Langley. Thank you. Good evening. So I am a family medicine doctor by day, but by night, I moonlight as a flight surgeon. Flight nurses, they're the ones that you see in the helicopters saving people's lives, keeping them alive until they can get to hospital after their terrible accident, whatever happened to them. That's not what flight surgeons do. Flight surgeons are primary care doctors for pilots. So they work both inside the military and outside the military. Because you want your pilots to be in really good health when they're flying those enormous jets right over your house. 
if they have a bad earache that day and they can't concentrate on what they're doing, that's a bad day for everyone. So one of the things that I do in my job is to discuss the aerospace physiology of what happens to you when you go up in a plane. So maybe you're going to star in the next Top Gun movie. Maybe you're an airman who just worked really hard in the Air Force and you get to take an incentive flight in an F-16. One of my jobs is to make sure that you survive that flight. And that's what I'll be discussing with you today for when you take your next high G flight. There are a couple things that are gonna get in the way. If you're throwing all up all over everything, that's no fun. If you're getting decompression sickness afterwards and can't move your elbow without excruciating pain, I don't like that. If you pass out and spend the entire time unconscious and don't get to appreciate your flight, that's not my goal. So let's discuss how you avoid those. Now the area that we're flying in is between 10 and 50,000 feet. If you go above that, we're getting into space, we're getting into the U-2, you have to wear a whole astronaut suit. We're not going there. But there's enough threats above 10,000 feet for us to deal with. All right, motion sickness, you get that in the car. Basically, it's what happens when your inner ear workings are disagreeing with what your eyes are telling your brain that you're doing and are disagreeing with maybe what your joints are telling you. Your joints are saying you're sitting in a car chilling, but your eyes are telling you you're going really fast and you get motion sick. Happens in a plane too. But you have those additional, not just side to side movements, now you're going up and down as well. All that much more potential for getting sick. Even though a lot of my incentive flyers like to avoid eating beforehand because they don't want to throw up, eating actually helps. Breathing deeply, trying to relax, and avoiding drinking too much the night before in celebration of that awesome incentive flight are all what we suggest. Another thing that happens when you go up to higher pressure is that there's higher altitude is there's less pressure, there's less atmosphere pressing down on you. So any gases that you might have in your body are gonna expand. You might have noticed this on commercial flights. When you take off, everyone's intestinal gases are expanding. Sorry about that. You can expect that. You also might have had dental work done and there might be the tiniest amount of gas in your cavity under, between your tooth and your filling. That's gonna expand and can be really painful too. But most often people have problems with their inner ears. So if they have any congestion, that eustachian tube that connects their inner ear to the back of their nose and throat is clogged up, you're gonna to wanna to clear that. So knowing how to pop your ears, moving your jaw around, yawning, mouth salving, are all ways to deal with that. Decompression sickness is, if you've heard of it before, since you are fellow nerds, it's most likely from scuba diving. So scuba diving, you go down from a lot of pressure, and if you come up too fast, the nitrogen bubbles that have slowly been seeking in to your, all your tissues, and have just been tiny little bubbles, when you come to the surface, can become big bubbles. When you have big bubbles that aren't supposed to be there, your body freaks out. If they're in your brain, it's serious issues. If they're in your lungs, they're gonna prevent your blood from being able to exchange oxygen with the air that's in your lungs. You can get them in your joints too. And this is an example, this is kind of a cartoon. You've got a big gas bubble that formed from little gas bubbles 
and all of your blood vessels are treating it like a foreign body. Something has invaded your blood vessels. You get edema, inflammation, you've got all these cytokines going crazy. It's not comfortable. So the way we avoid this is don't scuba dive before you take a flight, and especially if you're going to be flying in a high G flight, don't waste your time scuba diving the day before. You're going to get enough excitement from your flight. This fancy mask that we have here is all to supply you with oxygen. It's also the radio connector. This is my helmet. It's in good shape. Because the thing about losing oxygen to your brain is it can be sneaky. In fact, one of the ways we train pilots and air crew that go up on a regular basis is we put you in a little chamber where we can control the pressure. We put an oxygen mask on you. We get you pretty high, altitude-wise, and then we take away your mask. There's observers with oxygen masks still on that can watch you, and you have a fifth grade worksheet to work on. Four times five is this, trace this maze, and about halfway down the worksheet, it stops making sense. You're going hypoxic, and that's important because you need to know what symptoms you have of hypoxia. If somehow you're flying a big old jet and there's a tiny little hole in the side of that jet, not that you would notice, and you're losing all your oxygen, that's a problem. And you might not be able to recognize that your mental processes are slowing down. Not a good idea. So these are all the symptoms that people tend to experience. The first time I did this training, I had the most dangerous symptom on there. I was euphoric. I felt like I'd had too many to drink. I was having a really good time. I wanted to keep scribbling all over my worksheet. I didn't want to listen to anyone telling me to put my oxygen back on. And that's the most dangerous. Because if you're up in your plane and people, the air traffic controllers are talking to you and telling you there's something wrong with how you're flying and you're just laughing it off, oh, bad news. Luckily, your symptoms do tend to change over time. We don't really know why. So the last time I did this, I got a bad headache. Not as much excitement in getting a bad headache from going hypoxic, but a lot safer. And it's not just about a leak in the side of the aircraft. Sometimes your oxygen equipment is malfunctioning itself, so maybe it's just you. Sometimes, if you're an incentive flyer, you might not realize that you had a, a lung issue and so you weren't able to get the oxygen that you needed when the pressures changed at high altitude. The exciting part of going up in an F-16 are the G-forces. So remember, a, one G-force is the amount of gravity that you're experiencing right now. And sometimes you hit a hill pretty nicely when you're driving along and you get that butterfly feeling in your stomach and you have less than a G. And sometimes you go on roller coasters and you are coming up from the bottom of that curve and you feel more than a G. So you've all ex probably experienced at least a little bit of G fluctuation. If you've watched the Thunderbirds perform, you may have noticed that they always turn the same way. So you're flying super fast, you can't just turn and go that way. This is the top of the plane, bottom of the plane, right. You have to turn, you have to change the angle of your plane and then turn because you're going so fast. Now it always perplexed me as to why people didn't turn this way. Why didn't they put their belly of their plane 
towards the way they wanted to turn. The reason is of the way that gravity affects pilots and their physiology. If you turn this way, gravity is pulling blood up to your brain. That doesn't sound so bad. But in reality, it makes you red out. You uncontrollably pass out, you see red, there's nothing you can do, you're gone. Whereas, if you turn the other way and gravity is pulling your blood towards your feet, you can fight that. And that's why they have these G-suits. So you're trying to push the blood up from your body where it's pooling. It might pool in your muscles or in your gut or in your lungs. And you want to push it up to your brain. So you want to eliminate the space in those areas. You want to fill up your lungs with air so that the blood can't pool there. And you want to tense all your muscles and your abs. But if you just tense them against the outside of the world, there's not much that's going to happen. That's why we have G-suits. This kind of goes on like chaps. Ta-da, like so. And then you can see the cool air tube connects to your oxygenation system. And then these wrap around your legs and zip up really tight. And you can make them even tighter with an extra zipper right before you get in the plane. Those are full of air bladders that fill up from your oxygen system so that you can tense your muscles against them and force that blood up into your brain. So much that you stay conscious. Whenever I fly, I'm not a real pilot. I just sit in the back seat and enjoy the ride. So I can play around with this while we're flying. So we can go under some G's and I can relax and slowly watch my vision gray out. And then I can start straining again and tensing my muscles and forcing all that blood back and watch my vision go back. It's really cool. And this is demonstrating the difference between the negative G's where you're going into the curve with your belly versus going into the curve with your back with the top of the plane. In that a negative G, you are incapacitated at three G's. I bet most of you have felt three G's on a roller coaster ride before. But look at that. Well, you can withstand five to six G's without a G suit if you're going the other way. With a G suit, you can withstand at least about nine G's. That's how many G's I've ever pulled. It's hard. It's not fun at all. You feel like an elephant is sitting on your chest and you're gasping for air. But it's doable. You can stay conscious. If you have, think about it later, look up G-Lock, G-Induced Loss of Consciousness on YouTube so you can actually see folks train for their anti-G straining maneuver. That's what that tensing and taking a deep breath movement is called. So they go around in a centrifuge under high G's and experience it. You can watch them slowly pass out and it's kind of fun. Other ways that you can increase your G tolerance so that you don't pass out is to stay hydrated. The more blood volume that you have, the more you can get blood to your brain. To practice your G straining maneuver, most people forget to tense their butts for some reason, so you always have to remind them to do that. And in general, all the things that you're told not to do tend to help. So actually smoking, having high blood pressure, being really short. Tom Cruise was actually a pretty good 
guy to be a fighter pilot. And it's, yeah, the tall, lanky guys are always the ones that are passing out all the time. So that's how you survive your next high G flight. Do you have any questions? The question is, what got me into being a flight surgeon? I wanted to be a doctor, and I wanted the Air Force to pay for it if it could, and they said they would want to. And then I asked around as to who enjoyed their job the most in the Air Force, especially of the doctors. And I know, being a family doc and a military a civilian is pretty similar, but the flight surgeons all said they had the most fun. So that's why I got into it. And then I, I took a class, and they put me in a centrifuge and tried to make me throw up, and I didn't. So I felt like that was meant to be. The new Top Gun, he asked me what I thought of it. I loved it. I really liked it a lot. I, I think I was laughing at crying in all the wrong spots. The G-lock part really got me because that's exactly what I'm trying to avoid all my pilots doing. It struck a little close to home. I was sobbing and everyone else was crying at all the other parts. But I thought it was a fantastic movie and I'm really interested in all the different training they did for the actors and actresses that they survived to make it look more authentic. They should have looked a lot more old when they were going under those G-forces. They, they weren't going under the real amount of G-forces, which is no surprise. But the way that your face changes when you're under all those G-forces is pretty impressive. It's another thing you can YouTube. Yes. I have no idea. If anyone can Google how many, what's the highest number of Gs anyone's experienced without passing out, I'd be curious to know. It's above nine. All pilots in the Air Force and all military, American military has uh, a flight surgeon like me. Exactly. Yep, I'm trying to think of any exceptions. And the civilian pilots have to undergo an exam with a flight surgeon on a regular basis. I can't remember if it's every one year or two years. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. What do you think about that, huh? That was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So, next round of trivia. Still July edition trivia. Again, raise your hands, and I will call on you if you happen to know the, the answer. All right. Question one. July 9th, 1981 is the official arcade release date of this popular video game franchise featuring a stubborn large ape. Yes. Donkey Kong. Now, there is a bonus question. It also marks the first time we got to see who? Yes. Mario, who took on the antagonist ape in the game way before he appeared in Super Mario Brothers in 1985. Give him an airhead. Yeah. What 
holiday is celebrated today, July 20th, that encourages us to look towards the sky. I can't, no, well, I don't know, I might give it to you. So today is actually Space Exploration Day, but it was, it happened because of the moon landing. So the moon landing happened, and so they decided to celebrate it on today. And the last question, who is a brave new world author that shares a birthday with Nerd Night boss Maritza? Yes. Aldous Huxley. All right. I've been watching the Instagrams of both our Best of the West Wing Fest and our Nerd Night, and I've been watching people start to follow us. I've been watching people comment on the pictures, so continue to have them in. You still have a whole nother speaker, a whole break, and another speaker to get that in before we decide who will be the winner. And for now, you have about 10, another 10, 15 minutes to go ahead, refill your drinks, get some more grub, mingle, and we'll meet back here. Everybody. I don't have to scream long, but I do need to change Excuse him one moment. Yes, I have an echo. <laughs> he has an echo. <laughs> We're getting ready. All right, everybody. All right, everybody. Let's put our hands together for me. <laughs> Forward is down. So I'm Lisa Hatfield. I am just a regular civilian. And I'm here to tell you about a story of hope, about things you really can do, even when you get home tonight, so that you can be safer when a wildfire comes here. I want you to cheer, because it's going to be all positive news. Let's see. And then, when I, so this is the story of the flying ember, wildfire, and you. And I've also written a novel that has real people in it and stuff called To Starve an Ember. And by the time we're done tonight, you're going to understand why you need to starve those embers to keep your house safe. But, to, but this story is about the actual ember itself, and he's the main character. So it's a story of hope for you. So it's a tale of hope about how we can adapt again to living with wildfires by controlling the fuels on our property, on your private property. You don't want anybody else to come there and do that for you. You want to do it yourself. Once upon a time, a smoldering ember lived in a stone-lined fire pit dug into the earth. This flying ember, this living bit of charcoal, lived happily with the people for 10,000 years. It was part of the community, and it was loved and appreciated. The people could not imagine life without the flying ember. They kept the fire alive throughout the seasons and the centuries. When they moved from one camp to another, they carried live embers with them, nestled inside a bison horn c 
coated with mud and sealed with a stone. The embers were vital to them. The fire represented continuity with all the generations of their ancestors. They used fire to parch seeds and nuts and cook food. It helped them through the harsh winter weather and they gathered around its warmth to visit and tell stories. They used frequent low intensity fires to manage the landscape for a specific species of plants and animals and to hunt deer, elk, and antelope. And this routine fire restored the land by encouraging new life and getting rid of dead vegetation. Every year when the weather and the wind were just right, it was the flying ember's job to start a prescribed burn when the people set it free. Every year, several million acres burned and no one was upset. In fact, they were happy with the flying ember for helping them so much. That's how it was supposed to be. In the prairies, it made room for native plants to push through the tough root systems. The fire crawled along through the pine needles with a low flame, and when it reached a tree, it would jump up the bark several feet and then drop down again and keep going. It was doing its job. The pine cones opened to let new conifer seedlings grow, and the ashes of the old plants returned nutrients to the soil. The fire loved to burn, clearing out the prairie, the understory, and the woody brush. Since they burned regularly, there wasn't too much fuel, and the fire's temperature was low and didn't damage the earth. It just burned a patch coming up against last year's burn scar on this side, and on the other side, the patch where it burned the year before that, making a mosaic pattern. The fire was not a catastrophe. It was a useful tool. The ember liked that, being part of the way nature intended all things to work together for good, even fires. It liked being alive. All it needed to stay alive was fuel, oxygen, and heat. If it ran out of fuel or oxygen or got too cold, it would starve, suffocate, and die. But with a little bit of fine, dry fuel, it thrived and it could kindle a warm fire with just a few sparks. Eventually, the people who held the flying ember in such high esteem, the people who lived as a team with the landscape, had to move away. Most of the new people who moved onto the land saw fire in the prairie or in the trees only as a destructive force that started by accident. They didn't know how the fire could help make the ecosystem healthier. Whenever a fire started, the people stopped it right away because they were afraid and because their houses were now in its path. They didn't realize that the fuel was piling up as the vegetation kept growing. No small fires were allowed to keep burning or to clear out the fuel on a regular basis. They decided to stop all the fires because they were all bad. This was called fire suppression policy. So the flying ember went into hiding. It was a fugitive now. It had a bounty on its head. The fire didn't get to clean up the prairie or the forests. Every seedling, weak or strong, struggled beside its neighbors. Dog hair thickets of pines clumped up and every tree tried to grow to be a mature pine tree. 
And so instead of just a few healthy pine trees per acre, now there were 300 or even 500. But because they were all squished together and had to compete with each other for water and sunlight, they looked like lollipops, tall sticks with clumps of branches only growing at the top. Meanwhile, the people built more towns in places where there never had been towns before. They built log cabins with cedar shake roofs and wooden decks. They built clapboard cabins and put their wood piles next to them to help them get through the winter. And the ember looked at all of them and smacked its lips, saying, Fuel, I am so hungry. If I all right, nerds, let's get ready for our last presenter of the evening. Be there or be rectangular rhombus. We might change our tagline. We're having another identity crisis. <laughs> all right, who's ready to find out what this whole theater of cruelty is all about? All right, let's welcome Seth Harris to the stage, and we're going to learn about the theater of cruelty, whatever that is. I have no idea what this is. I don't know either. <laughs> So I'm supposed to use this thing? Yes, down and forward. Which way is down, though? The arrows look exactly the same. And here's light, if you need light. Down is forward. Oh, wonderful. Look at that. Magic. A PowerPoint. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Seth Harris. I am an actor and theatrician of all kinds. Uh, and we are going to talk tonight about theater of cruelty. Uh, I've subtitled it Antonin Artaud and the Theater for Social Change. Using theater as a means of changing people into better people than they were when they started. That's a nice thought. So let's cover a couple of basic things first. Yes? Number one. Oh, there was a, there was a, oh yeah. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're scaring the shit out of people. That's how we're doing this. So, a couple of basic things. Number one, what is theater? What does theater mean? What is this thing that we are talking about when we say theater? What does theater, what does theater mean to you? Plays, musicals. Plays and musicals, great, yeah. That's, what, what, what does theater mean to you? What's your experience of theater? Great entertainment. Great entertainment. Entertainment. We're out there making you laugh, making you cry, making you feel things. Entertainment, yes. So these are the things that we generally associate with theater. It's a stage. There are lights that shine down on that stage and on the people who are on that stage. Those people, oh, hey, that one's me. Uh, those people are saying words to each other. Cool, words, great. Um, yeah, that's exciting. Words are exciting. You say words. I say words. Theater is a reflection of being a person. Right? Maybe. So another question. Is the world okay? Is this, is this world we're in all right right now? What do you, you think? Is it okay? No. No, it's, no, it's not. No, this world is it's not. It's, it's in a bad way. Uh, it's dying. We keep throwing missiles at each other. And uh, none of these are good things. Oh, hey, it's Daisy. Hey, Daisy. Welcome in. Um, 
So no, the world is not okay. Ergo, we have something to accomplish with something that we think of as theater for social change. If we want indeed to make a better world, maybe, maybe we can find theater as a tool. But what should we not do? Realism in theater. This is what you're, this is the thing that we are generally associating, right? Realism in theater or modernism in theater uh, is the idea of two people sitting on the stage like, oh, Barbara, it's so good to see you. Yes, Gerald, it's been so long. How are you? I'm loving Barbara. How are you? This is not exciting to you or to me or to anyone. Uh, incidentally, this is the only slide I'm going to have with bullet points. Uh, so take it in, and if you get to the bottom, you will be amused. None of these bullet points means anything. Nothing in realism means anything. It's just a reflection of what we do in our lives. And if what we cared about was what we do in our lives, all we do is pay attention to being alive, right? Like, that's all you need. So what is theater adding to this equation? And I would say, when we're doing realism, very little. We're just having discussions. Have your own discussions. Talk amongst yourselves. It's great. So then we get into Antonin Artaud, who developed, oh, yeah. Was he an insane gremlin? Maybe. Was he a pioneering genius? Yes. Uh, that, oh, I lied when I said it was the only slide with bullet points. This one also has a bullet point. One bullet point. Artaud, we don't really need to know anything about Artaud. This is why I put this one bullet point in here. It is kind of neither here nor there what his life consisted of. He was mostly in insane asylums for his adult life. Uh, one, he was from France. One time, a friend of his gave him a, a, a staff, like a, like a walking stick. And Artaud was convinced that this was a holy relic from Ireland. So he went to Ireland to try to return this holy relic of Ireland and uh, 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 became very hungry and was homeless and, and got returned to France and went back into an insane asylum, quite rightly so. So why are we trusting him on any of this? I don't know. I'm the one talking up here. You're just listening to me, so fuck it. Uh, oh, yeah. So here we go. So... Artaud created this idea of the theater of cruelty. Now, what are we talking about when we say theater of cruelty? Cruelty, hopefully, is not a word that we generally associate with going to the theater, uh, unless we are going to see very boring theater, in which case we might think, well, that's, that is cruelty, indeed. But this is a very different kind of cruelty. Specifically, uh, okay, so Artaud was really obsessed with the idea of the plague. The bubonic plague, specifically, not the one that we just had, um, which was, relatively speaking, a walk in the park, compared to the bubonic plague, which consisted of the plague moving into a town, and all of a sudden, the people around you would start producing buboes, these uh, uh, marks on the skin, where the, the insides of your body would start coming out, and they would become the outside of your body, which is not where you want the inside of your body to be. That's very gross. And you'd have doctors walking around with, you know, long things because for whatever reason they thought that that would protect them. They would walk on uh, wooden stilts thinking that maybe the ground was the thing that spread the bubonic plague. They were wrong. Uh, they were wrong about pretty much everything. Suffice to say, the plague would come into a town. It would wipe out like 50, 75% of the people around you. And not in like 
a nice way. This wasn't a pleasant death. This was a horrifying, revolting, terrible death. Everything about it was really unpleasant. And you would be, as you survived through this experience of watching everybody around you die, you would be immersed in dreadful sounds and dreadful smells and dreadful just existence. Your friends, your family, everybody's dying around you in the worst way possible. And this, Artaud says, this is what theater should be. Thank you. Uh, but how do we... Because we can't actually kill people when they come to the theater, much as we might like to from time to time. How do we create theater that operates as the plague? Because here's the thing that Artaud noticed about the plague. It's that after you survived it, after watching all of the people around you die, after going through this incredibly traumatizing, challenging experience, you came out of it changed. The miser became generous. The cruel person became kind. Everybody came out of this, once the plague had passed, a better person for it. So how do you kind of skip to the end on that, Karen, right? How do you go from a plague, which frankly, I mean, you know, like we shouldn't actually be, yes, and killing everyone, but Perhaps we can eh, be just cruel enough to them that they are able to come out of the experience change. So how do we go about that? A total sensory experience. Our toad says, no, f to hell with all of this just talking on a stage. Let's make sure that we are inundating people with bright lights. Let's make sure that the sounds are blasting in their ears. Let's make sure that everything about the, the the theater is uncomfortable and terrifying. His most significant influences consisted of the Balinese theater, which is uh, fascinating. Uh, if you've ever been to Bali and seen theater, uh, people wear big masks. They're in your face. It's not, you know, me up here. Oh, Julia. Hmm. Uh, it's much more down here and everyone has to experience it directly, right? And that's a lot more effective. I mean, even just for you right now, that moment was a lot more interesting than an entire play of watching a couple of people talk to each other on a stage. So, A, and B, uh, also influenced by things like, uh, who here has heard of the playwright John Ford? John Ford? We got one. Really? Was that? Only by name. So John Ford was a, a nearly a contemporary of Shakespeare. Uh, his most significant play, which Artaud considered one of the great plays of the classical <laughs> age, was called Tis Pity She's a Whore, uh, and consisted of basically just two hours of blood going everywhere. Uh, it, is, it, was written, it was written in 1622, just a couple of years after Shakespeare died, um, and uh, is not what you might call like a pleasant night out, but it certainly is going to affect you. And this is what, for our Toad Theater, was all about. Not about making sure that you had 
to your point, an entertaining experience, but making sure that you had a transformative experience. Making sure that when you left the theater, you were not quite the same person as you were before. And Tisbury, she's a whore, is certainly going to do that for you. If you had the chance just a few years ago, uh, uh, the student production at UCCS uh, did Tis Pity, She's a Whore, and um, <laughs> even as a student production, it was uncomfortable, uh, which is great. It's exactly... Thank you very much. It's exactly what you want the theater to be. Not pleasant, but transformative. So, let's explore what Otto did with this. Theater of Cruelty in Practice. It's a blank slide. There's nothing there. There's no bullet points. I'm not going to be mean to you. I mean, like maybe later at some, I don't know, if you earn it. I'll be mean to you if that's warranted, but you don't seem like somebody that somebody should be mean to. And then you try to be mean to me, but no, that's not going to. Anyway, the point being, this is basically a good summary of theater of cruelty actually happening. Because our toad was in an insane asylum. And he wrote a wonderful book called The Theater and Its Double, but he was in an insane asylum, so he didn't get really a chance to, you know, do anything with it. And everybody else basically went, you're a guy in an insane asylum, why would we do what you think is right? And there's something to that. But, yeah, screw it. Why not give it a go? However, it should be noted that Artaud had rather a significant influence because although nobody really put theater of cruelty into practice, uh, his influence was extraordinarily ubiquitous in 20th century theater. So let's see. Uh, well, that's not theater, that's philosophy. That's uh, Gilles Deleuze. Anybody read Deleuze? Anybody? Anybody? No? No? Don't. Uh, but uh, uh, Deleuze is an extraordinarily integral part of 20th century philosophy and somebody that you should be acquainted with, but don't actually read what he has to write because it's, uh, yeah, it's an insane challenge. Uh, but he really integrated a lot of what Artaud had to say about the nature of the being, of being on stage, of being in relation to another person. Theater of the Oppressed is actually one of the things that we see a lot more commonly. Theater of the Oppressed is uh, developed by uh, a fellow by the name of Boel in Brazil. Uh, Boel said, why don't we create an experience for the audience wherein we open dialogue with them? Instead of just presenting something to them, invite them up onto the stage and say, what is your experience of being a person? What might we learn from that? and thereby present a story that is actually relevant to the lives of the people around us. Uh, Bauhaus, the band, created an, uh, 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 a song called Anton Artaud. That's neat. Uh, 
Peter Brook ran the RSC, the, the Royal Shakespeare Company, for some time, and was an incredible innovator when it came to presenting things that were relevant to the space in which they were being produced. So instead of just doing, you know, whatever, uh, the next bullshit production of The Importance of Being Earnest, creating theater that was... And, and <laughs> I was very recently in a bullshit production of The Importance of Being Earnest. Uh, creating theater that meant something to the people that were there. You know, instead of it just being the story of somebody far away, create stories that are relevant. The most interesting, the most significant production of theater that I've ever been a part of was called Northside at a theater in, in Denver called Suteatro, which is a, a Chicano theater company. And they developed this play that was about the gentrification of the north side of Denver. It, in a 260-seat theater, sold out 26 times, and then two more times at a 700-seat theater at North High School, which is, if you know anything about going to theater, ridiculous. That we sold 10,000 tickets, just being a, like, you know, whatever theater company is extraordinary. And why did we do this? Because we were telling a story that was relevant to the people who lived there, that meant something, that resonated. This is, this should not be a revolutionary concept, and yet here we are. Uh, also, I have Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen up there. Why? Uh, because of the theater of the absurd. So, uh, back it, uh, here we have uh, Waiting for Godot, uh, and so on is a different way of approaching what theater means, right? Instead of it being just sensible dialogue between two people, we have something that is hard to wrap your mind around, hard to really, like, get there with, but you know it's drawing you in for something, for there is meaning there. And as soon as you start to be drawn in by it, as soon as that meaning starts to become revealed, an abstract meaning, not a concrete meaning, then you are yourself transformed. And Beckett was very informed by Anderson Artaud. So, 20th century theater, hugely influenced by Artaud. And yet, do we have theater of cruelty? No. Should we? That wasn't a rhetorical question. Should we? On basis of what we'd heard so far, should theater of cruelty become a thing that we do? You? You don't think so, why don't you think so? I'm not challenging you, I'm just curious. You see, this is a very interesting thing that you're saying. We, you don't think you, we should do it because in order to understand it, you need to experience it, which in order for you to under, experience it, we need to do it. So, yeah, I mean, so what you're saying ultimately is that we should do it, so at the very least you can experience it and understand it, right? What about you? Nah, you don't care? Nah, you don't care. You don't go to the theater or what? Why? Why don't you go to the theater? Because it makes you uncomfortable? What makes you uncomfortable about the theater? Because, because you're, like, there with it, Right? Yeah, it's the performance makes you uncomfortable? Do you watch movies? Really? Fascinating. What 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 do you do for entertainment? You read and you walk. This person is far too wholesome for this conversation. <laughs>
All right. So what's, what is the next slide? Oh, it's time for reflection. I skipped ahead to that. I created a whole slide for this time of reflection, and, and, and then I forgot to go to it. It's, you know, these are the things that happen. So what's the slide that happens after that? Oh, questions. We have a question right there, very enthusiastic. Have I heard of sleep no more? Uh, oh, let's actually go back a couple of slides. Um, so one of the things that I, I, I very strangely forgot to mention uh, is the whole idea of immersive theater or uh, immersive artistic experiences. I, I put up a picture of, um, that's uh, Meow Wolf in Denver, uh, which I have some cursory relationship with. I work there. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, so yeah, Sleep No More is a, a wonderful reinterpretation of Shakespeare that involved, I mean, you're in it, you're there, and this too is very much influenced, any immersive theater that you come across is very much influenced by our toad, uh, because it, it deconstructs the whole idea of theater as something that is you guys and me, and instead becomes us, Right? Instead of it being some sort of divisional thing, all of a sudden we can have a conversation with each other. All of a sudden you have a sense of me as a person that isn't just up there on a stage, but is instead somebody who's talking with you really very directly. And that is a hell of a lot more meaningful than watching somebody converse with somebody else who's getting paid to converse with them and they have the words all in front of them and that's boring. So... Yes. So yes, Sleep No More was an extraordinary thing. And, and the same company actually did one in Denver uh, about five years ago. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it too was like an, an extraordinary, interesting experience. You, you got rained on in a warehouse. They, they made rain. Why? Because that is a sensory experience. You can't just say it's raining. Feel the rain. They gave you umbrellas. It was okay. Uh, anybody else got questions? Yes. What's that? I do think we should have the theater of cruelty, and I'll tell you why. Uh, oh, wait, no, I just did. Um, because in order for us to reach people, sometimes we have to challenge people. And I think we spend far too much of our lives sitting in comfort away from... a world that is not okay. Comfort protects us, but it also makes us complacent. And I think now, this time in our world, is the last time we should be complacent. Complacency is going to lead to our destruction. So, yes, I believe in the theater of cruelty because, yes, I do think we should be made uncomfortable because it is an uncomfortable world. And if we need to go experience something in order to recognize just what that discomfort means and how it might affect our lives and the lives of the people around us, then yeah, let's do it. Let's figure out what that means. Let's figure out how to communicate with each other in a way that is honest about the world around us. Am I working to put this in action? 
suddenly the one who's not so interested in it is... is <laughs> no, he wants to see it. He wants to experience it. Yes, you're on board. You've joined us. You're a convert. Am I working on something now actively? No. Uh, do, am I working on things that will eventually be produced? Yes, absolutely. So uh, get on their mailing list. I will let them know when uh, something is happening, and then you can find out too. So I have a few things on the back burner that are, you know, like they're coming to the front, they're coming to the fore, but I'm not quite there yet. But yes, yes, this is something that I am going to do, and yes, this is something that I'm going to try my best to convert other theater people in our world toward, because I'm really tired of seeing boring theater. Uh, I'm really tired of being in boring theater, quite frankly. Um, so, you know, let's do better. Question. Do I? Yeah. What a great question. Do I think there are a lot of things that are pretending to be theater of cruelty, like that are, that are like, purporting to be, but ultimately fall short? And yes, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, including the student production of Tis Pity She's a Whore at, at UCCS, which really gave it a go. Uh, there was loud music, and there was, you know, like, bright lights. And there was this poor young woman whose arm was in a cast that clearly she'd broken her arm doing this show because the director pushed them too hard and what I never ever want is for anyone's safety to actually be in jeopardy. I just want you to feel like it's in jeopardy. Uh, so, I mean, it was problematic in a lot of ways, but yeah, I do see from time to time things where people try to create an experience that is challenging, but it, we have a tendency to pull back. You know, if that's our aspiration, we imagine what it's going to take and then we pull back because we become afraid. Which is a completely understandable you know, response to the situation that we are creating for ourselves. Uh, Flip is yawning. <laughs> I do a lot of things too. And here I am. I worked all day. I, I, I uh, at the place from earlier. Meow Wolf. We have so many questions. I love this. You, back there first. Oh, man, that's such a great question. That is a really wonderful question. Is theater of cruelty only necessary because we, we as an audience, fail to engage with realism or modernism in theater uh, empathetically, like, uh, that, we, that we fail to really recognize ourselves in the characters that are happening. And I would say the answer is, uh, as we would say in German, jein, uh, yes and no. Uh, in that, modernism, realism is really bad at creating empathy. It is, absolutely. Unless you are very naturally a highly empathetic person, it is not going to inspire empathy in you. It is not going to bring you to that place. One of the things that I think is really interesting about theater of cruelty is that it has the opportunity to put you into the position of the person that you should be empathizing with in a very literal sense. 
right? Not that, because when you go to see a play, when you go to see, I don't know, whatever, uh, you're sitting out in the audience and you are not actually a part of it except insofar as, and this is why theater is amazing, you are co-creating it with the people who are on the stage, right? Whereas with immersive theater, with theater cruelty, whatever, you are directly there. You are a part of the action, if you will, on the stage and consequently cannot escape, hopefully, and that's and it's one of the things that I think is really important about theater is that it is captive. You cannot escape being subjected to whatever it is that you are being subjected to. And this is, when we do theater of cruelty, it's very important that we, as the creators of the art form, also have empathy for our audience. Uh, only by having that are we going to be able to create experiences that create empathy in them. One of the things that I really want to do, to your point, this is a fantasy I've had for years. If any of you have a lot of money, please give it to me to make this. Uh, is to build a, a ship in a warehouse, whatever. Like a, a, a you know, 18th century, early 19th century ship that is a slave ship. And you as the audience are brought in as the slaves and forced to lie in this ship as the performance is happening around you, subjected to the experience of being a slave brought across the Atlantic. We're not gonna hurt you, physically, but hopefully you will gain a deeper understanding of what that system actually meant to those who were a part of it, on both sides. Uh, what that part of our history in the United States and, and throughout uh, the Americas and Western Europe, what that really meant for those who were subjected to it. And Maurice is over here standing in a way that suggests that I should probably shut the fuck up. Uh, we had a couple of other questions. If you want to ask me, uh, please do find me. I'll be sitting right there. Um, Thank you very much, and uh, that's it. Thank you, thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much, Seth. That was very informative. I've never heard of this theater of cruelty before. Um, all right. Now I have to go. Am I going backwards? Boop, boop. Okay. All right, there we go. So now, the moment you've all been waiting for. Who's going to win the Best of the West Wing Fest ticket? All right. Do we have a KB9OIB, a.k.a. Maria Wallace? Is there a Maria Wallace in the house? There is not. No worries. I have someone else. <laughs> uh, where did this person go? Is there a S J Banfield? Ah, there you go, S.J. Banfield, come on up. 
Grab your ticket. We'll be seeing you at Wing Fest. Make sure you tell all your friends, family, and bring everyone with you, okay? All right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for playing with me today and, uh, and indulging me in checking in in all of the likes and the follows on Instagram. We appreciate you. The next Nerd Night right here on this stage at Kobadi is Wednesday, August 17th. Beer, nerds, trivia, fun, all the good things. Keep on the lookout. We try to be very active on our socials, on Facebook, on Instagram. Thanks to the lovely Erica over here, which helps me out on, on, on all the socials. And uh, if you have any presenting ideas, which I know some of you have asked me, uh, you can email us at nerdnightcos at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram or Facebook. Our next, uh, our, our, another awesome community event that we do is Memoirs, True Stories Unfiltered. What is your reason is the next theme. You know, everyone says it happens for a reason. Um, it's going to be on Monday, August 29th at Kinship Landing. And of course, Best of the West Wing Fest, Saturday, August 6th. Promo code NerdNightCOS gets you 10% off. So if you didn't win that ticket today, head over to our website, bestofthewestwingfest.com, and grab your tickets. And with that, we are done. Thank you. Have a good night. See you around.